Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a closer look at the fine being imposed on SNC-Lavalin and what it tells us about Canada's ability to deal with serious cases of corporate corruption. Also, the CRTC is ordering telecommunications companies to crack down on spam calls. So what does this mean for consumers? Plus, 2019 draws to a close with Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You topping the pop charts 25 years after it was released. So how did this become such a Christmas sensation? So all's well that ends well, I guess, as far as that since Lavin is concerned, although that at least that seems to be the prevailing political attitude this week in response to a word of a plea deal with the company, pleading guilty to one count of fraud, paying a $280 million fine. Uh, their construction division won't have access to public contracts for three years, but then that's it. Uh, so the company will basically uh, carry on as though everything's fine. And I guess all the doomsday scenarios we'd heard about, so the company moving, losing 9,000 jobs, none of that's going to happen. So $280 million fine, and obviously $280 million is, is a lot of money. Uh, but just to give it some uh, context here, this stems from what the company was doing in Libya. Uh, and they were doing those things in Libya to get $2 billion in contracts. So paying a $280 million fine, well, that's a small portion of that $2 billion, isn't it? There's a story in the Globe and Mail today, more details on the company's behavior in Libya. In all, SNC spent $47 million on cash, gifts, and personal expenses to Saudi Gaddafi between 2001 and 2011, according to the Statement of Facts. In return, SNC benefited from his influence to secure contracts worth roughly $2 billion in Libya. SNC paid for several things, including security services, hotel, training, private parties, and entertainment. During two trips, the younger Gaddafi made to Canada in 2008 and 2009. The company even paid to decorate his condo in Toronto. SNC booked the expenses as attributable to construction projects in Libya, part of a larger scheme to inflate the price tag for contracts and therefore defraud the Libyan people, according to the plea agreement. So I think we should understand, A, the extent of all of this, B, the extent to which the company profited, uh, and, and then to think about whether or not a message has truly been sent here. As we saw when this story first broke, other countries are watching. Canada is uh, a, a signatory to international conventions with regards to bribery and corruption, and we have pledged that we are going to, to pursue these cases with vigor. But are we? What kind of message is being sent by this plea deal this week? Are we failing to live up to our obligations, or is this at some level a meaningful punishment for a company? Well, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, James Cohen, Executive Director of Transparency International Canada, transparencyinternational.ca. James, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, So your reaction uh, to to the uh, plea deal and, and the penalty this week? Well, from TI Canada's perspective, we are pleased to see an admission of guilt and a substantive fine. We would have liked to have seen the charges for the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act pursued. Uh, We're disappointed that those were dropped. Uh, We trust that the prosecutors had their reasons within the negotiation for uh, dropping those. 
but we do hope that the bottom line is that Canadian corporations get a message that uh, Canadian law enforcement prosecutors will take our obligations to our anti-corruption convention seriously and that no Canadian company will think that they can uh, get away with playing the odds of committing corruption overseas. Talk about why it's important. I mean, we heard a lot through this this whole situation about uh, the company's headquarters uh, being in Canada, the jobs that are associated with this company. We didn't talk a lot about why it's so important that, that Canada be a leader when it comes to, to taking white-collar crime, bribery, corruption seriously. Why is it so important? Right. Well, Canada, we have this reputation as an honest player within the global stage that you put a Canadian flag on a company or your backpack and you're seen as a good player around the world. And that comes with responsibilities. We have to make sure that our companies or individuals aren't overseas abusing that reputation uh, to commit corruption. Now, the problem with committing corruption is some people see it. Well, some of these countries are just like that anyway. Right. But they're like that because if we paid the bribes and we help those leaders who want a corrupt system to perpetuate their power, we're contributing to that undermining of governance, that grievance of the population, to economic underdevelopment, and any var- variation of human rights that come along with that. So paying bribes does have incalculable consequences that even you know, the value of what transpired doesn't quite capture that we have to be aware of. And so within all this, within all the reports, we didn't see a lot of, well, what about the people of Libya uh, who were under the dictator, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, during the time of these bribes? So it's something to reflect on. Uh, we're, we're glad to see that SNC-Lavalin did admit guilt. They did apologize, but there's no real mention of the Libyan people or if any reparations, which would have happened under a remediation agreement, there would have been reparations to the people. So there's one point of concern for us. In terms of cases that, that have come up in Canada, where, where does this rank? How serious uh, a case is this? It's quite a serious case given the... Uh, the media exposure around it. We had a national dialogue in this past year about this very issue of Canada's role in the world in paying bribes. For a lot of Canadians, it was news that were even party to this anti-bribery convention and the idea of the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act and what it means and what our obligations are. And you did see some commentary come out in the media saying, so what? Some of these countries just operate like that. What's the big deal? And thankfully, we did see pushback uh, to those arguments that, no, we can't just help perpetuate corruption overseas. So in terms of a national dialogue, it was a very large uh, deal in terms of a conversation and a substantive bribe and substantive penalty and the introduction of remediation agreements as well. So a lot came out of this case. Right. And I mean, yeah, it's not just the fact that, uh, you know, the, the company was in bed with a brutal regime that was uh, suppressing human rights in this country. Uh, but, but also the fact, too, that, I mean, you know, from what we've learned about the case, that, that you know, these contracts were being inflated uh, to, to help the company make more money. So essentially now you've, you've got the people of this country who are being fleeced as a result of this. Yeah, exactly. And there's very low accountability in a, in a country like Libya under its previous regime, or even now in the chaos that's uh, ensuing in Libya. 
And therein lies the case is that, you know, there's accountability on this side, there's audits on this side, there's the ability to track these numbers. We have uh, a duty to citizens in countries where they don't have the same access to financial records that we do to be tracking to make sure our corporations are uh, doing the best job possible to avoid corruption risk where they're doing business. All right. James, stand by for a second here. Now on Global News Radio, 770 CHQR. I'm Lynn Pelser. Hinton RCMP have confirmed the vehicle driven by Cody Armstrong has been located back at his residence. However, they are unable to confirm whether Cody and or Waylon are inside the home. There continues to be a large police presence at the home, and police are asking that the public avoid the area, and they are as well asking that the public not report police activity on social media. Stay with 770 CHQR for further details as they unfold. From Global News, I'm Lynn Pelser. All right, thanks for that, Lynn. Just an update on that Umber Alert situation from earlier today. Uh, We'll keep an eye on that through the afternoon. We're speaking with James Cohen now with Transparency International Canada, transparencycanada.ca, talking about uh, Canada's role in in the uh, global fight against corruption, what the SNC-Lavalin situation tells us. You know, and get, getting back to, to the, um, you know, the guilty plea, the fine, as we talked about at the outset, James, I mean, the, the company is taking accountability. Individuals as well are, are being held accountable. We had uh, one of their former executive VPs found guilty just recently. He'll be sentenced in the new year. And again, it's, it is valuable that they're taking um, accountability for this, uh, taking responsibility for this. That there is a $280 million fine. But what kind of a message do you think it sends to the company? Does it, does it seem to you like, you know, given that the company will still be eligible for, for federal contracts that, I don't know, have they learned their lesson here? Well, I would say that in one regard, the reputational damage that was done to SNC Lavalin over the last couple of years, the amount, they, they received a fine of $280 million, but you have to take into consideration the amounts in legal fees that they paid, the reputational damage, the stock damage uh, that came along with that. So there is uh, an added penalty um, to all this, and there's ongoing reputational damage. To SNC's credit, I mean, there has been a complete turnover of executives and board, and you know, I, I've met with their head of compliance, and uh, we're always, even those companies going uh, under struggles, always happy to meet their chiefs of compliance. Um, and then they have revamped their compliance system. So I do hope and they have they're, they are putting an honest foot forward in promoting compliance. They certainly do uh, promote enough compliance programs around Canada and around the world. On the two hundred eight million dollar fine, my hope is just, and I'm sure the prosecutors, you know, they, they've articulated their reasons uh, for this amount of fine. It is certainly substantial. Mm-hmm. What we just don't want to see is any Canadian company breaking down that $280 million that's meant to be paid over five years and thinking, yeah, cost-benefit analysis-wise, we could afford that. Um, the whole point of this is that it's a deterrent to other Canadian companies that they would go forward with committing corruption overseas and that they will proactively update their own compliance programs uh, to try to mitigate corruption risk as much as possible. And by the way, when, when we have substantial fines like that levy, does that money just go into government revenues or, or what happens with it? 
Well, we have yet to see what's going to happen with that levy. As I said, if this had been done under a remediation agreement, there would be mandatory uh, repayment to the victims of corruption. So whether any of this money goes uh, towards development in Libya, we don't know. Um, it so far hasn't been articulated, and we're just waiting to see the details of how the, the fine works out. And what about our laws? Are, are our laws sufficient? Is it just a case of ensuring that our laws are, are enforced, or should this be an opportunity maybe to, to go back and revisit some of our laws? Well, leading up to this case, there was the introduction of remediation agreements. Yes. And TI Canada, we actually came out in favor of remediation agreements because currently the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, it's a criminal law only. So even if companies came forward voluntarily to say, look, we did our own internal investigation and we found someone broke our own highly regarded ethics program, let's say, for example, and we want to come forward to the RCMP to admit guilt right away. Previously, it would have been automatic criminal charges. So the remediation agreement does give those companies who have honestly done a review an opportunity to come forward. But we need to make sure that there's other tools available for our law enforcement and public prosecutors. And at TI Canada, we're continuing to think about what are additional rules and to, to make sure that they have the most tools available to pursue these cases. If you look at a case like the U.S., a lot of the Foreign Corruption and Public Officials Act charges do wind up in settlements. But we want to make sure that companies don't just think that this is cost of doing business, that there is punishment involved. So even within a remediation agreement, while a company may avoid a criminal conviction, someone does have to be put forward or those parties who committed corruption or where the architects of the plans of corruption need to be put forward. So there is an individual accountable at the end of the day. So I think on top of additional tools, it's just making sure that the Canadian government following this case gives the RCMP and the Public Prosecution Service the resources as well to do their jobs, because these are very complicated cases involving different jurisdictions and a lot of uh, you know, terabytes of information yeah. uh, in many cases. What about the question of economic fallout here at home? I know that's not supposed to be a factor in, in prosecuting these cases, but, I mean, it becomes a political factor, I suppose, the potential for lost jobs, et cetera. Uh, how do we factor that into to these considerations? Well, that's been a question that's been ongoing uh, since the, the remediation agreements came up, is the balance between the obligations with the OECD anti-bribery anti convention and our implementation through the CFPOA and what's in the remediation agreement to try and secure jobs. Obviously, we don't want uh, people who had nothing to do with the case of corruption to fall victim. It depends on the scale of the corruption that was involved, uh, how far into the company it went, and how egregious of a case it was. Um, so I think we're still balancing through you know, the outcome of the punishment that was handed out to SNC-Lavalin's one division of SNC-Lavalin here and whether they got the message. All right. Well, we'll see what happens going forward here. Much more TransparencyCanada.ca. James, thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks for having Much me. Much appreciated. Uh, that is James Cohen, Executive Director of Transparency International Canada. Uh, so, I mean, they, they, they see that there are some positives here. In terms of, uh, you know, the fact that you have the company acknowledging wrongdoing, you've got this $280 million fine, three-year probation period uh, for SNC-Lavalin's compliance and ethics programs, as they say in their own press release, a modest win for Canada's anti-corruption regime.
Right. Spam phone calls seem to uh, be increasing in volume, and obviously there's concern about getting scammed, right? The spam calls are about trying to scam Canadians, and they are getting more sophisticated, too. Uh, so with all of that going on, uh, the uh, federal regulators taking some steps to try to crack down or to try to force the uh, telecom companies to crack down on all of this. Uh, so the big players, uh, Rogers, Bell, Talis, etc., uh, have been ordered to implement systems that will try to reduce these calls, try to block these scammers from calling you. But that might be easier said than done. Look, if someone's got your number, they're going to call you. Now, I suppose you as an individual can try to block that number, but uh, they can just switch to a different one. But look, I mean, these these are a annoying and, and yes, costly scams. According to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, uh, for the first 10 months of this year, about $24 million was lost to, to phone scams. Now, a lot of these, you, know, you probably heard these, the, the Canada Revenue Agency these threatening calls uh, that you get from someone claiming to be from the revenue agency. And yeah, people get taken in by this stuff. Well, joining us to talk more about what can be done to reduce these calls, what the CRTC has laid out here. We're pleased to welcome the program. Uh, Shruti uh, Shekhar is a telecom and tech reporter with Mobile Syrup. Shruti, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. So when we talk about uh, spam phone calls, does this, mm-hmm. I mean, does the term kind of have a, a definition here, relevant definition in this context? Uh, well, I mean, I think a spam phone call is any, um, I guess, unsolicited or unwanted nuisance phone call mm-hmm. uh, that that doesn't really belong in your phone book. And I don't mean like a number that's coming from your doctor's office because when they're calling, they're calling with a purpose and they know who you are. These are generally calls from people who are, uh, they don't know who you are and they're trying to basically get information that is very personal uh, and important information like your social insurance number, your credit card details, and, and essentially doing it in a way that's threatening uh, or scary, or sometimes even it could be, um, you know, like you won a, a, a cruise ship, give us your details right. and you can get it, right? So that essentially is a scam call or a spam call. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's what they are. I mean, it's it's not a sales pitch for anything. Typically, we're talking about people who are trying to scam us, and they figure the mm-hmm. best way to do it is to make some personal contact with us. Of course, yeah. exactly. Uh, so, what has prompted this on, on the part of this the CRTC? Is it is a perception that this problem is getting worse? Has it been complaints from consumers? What, what led to this? I think part and parcel of it is is the growing concern that came from Canadians. I mean, the CRTC has been working on this for quite some time, and they actually implemented the deadline, which was December 19th yesterday, uh, to implement some form of technology that will filter and block incoming spam phone calls. That was actually done last year, exactly one year ago. So uh, the carriers uh, and, and the CRTC have had a year to at least work on it. But you know, in the process, these scam callers have um, figured out better technology, better ways to work around what uh, a typical scam call is. And so right now, 
you might get a phone call that has some wonky numbers. It's really long and it's insane. So that's what's being cracked down right now. Those calls will no longer happen. Any call that's uh, below 15 digits or over 15 digits or have weird letters and then those will automatically be blocked. Uh, what is going to come in place in 20, uh, 2020, September 2020, is the second leg of the blocking, which is any call that's done over the Internet. So, you know, if you're making a call over WhatsApp or, uh, you know, it, there are several programs that allow you to manipulate a number. So it looks real on your phone, but it's, it's not a real person, like it's right. a scammer. That will, will, that a new technology will be coming in September 2020 that will, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's going to be a way of verifying uh, legitimate callers that are making calls over the internet. Right, because it, what you're referring to is uh, known as spoofing, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, there are some legitimate companies, um, you know, uh, PR firms, um, some some even journalists, like some journalism organizations use voice over Internet pro- protocol systems to call uh, individuals. And so uh, even doctor's offices, some might even be using them, uh, you know, using these services. So those type of services would be uh, verified and you would get either maybe it might look like a blue check mark or something like that. Uh, but if it's not a call that's legitimate, it, you would be notified essentially. Right. So th- this is kind of being done on our behalf then. The companies are going to put mechanisms in place to block these calls. Is, is there an onus on the, the customer, the user to do anything? Yeah. You know what I do? Uh, I've been talking about this for quite some time now, and I think it's, I think it's a two-way thing. I mean, it's, yeah. of course, the government as well as the carriers have a responsibility to protect Canadians, but I think uh, the onus is on us as well to, to stay educated, to stay vigilant, to understand what are the ways to block calls. You know, just because the technology is coming in, it doesn't mean that scam calls won't happen. It just means that they were they will reduce in the number of calls you get. So how do you deal with scam calls? Well, you know, don't give out your information, first of all. Uh, maybe use a third-party application that uh, get, gives that added protection uh, and blocks any unwanted phone call. And a lot of phones these days come with a special call blocking system uh you know the iphone has if you go into settings you can actually select phone and then select uh call block or i, I can't remember the exact terminology if you go on a, a google pixel phone this is interesting actually if you have a, a new pixel phone you can actually go into settings and select call screen and what that does is it will whenever you get a phone call from a number that you don't know it, your Google Assistant will actually answer the phone before you answer it, really? and will give it. Yeah, it will give you a transcription on your phone, so the assistant will say, "This is an automated message. The call screen is in ta- intact. Uh, who is this? Who is calling?" And the person on the other end will actually talk and say, "I'm Shruti. I'm talking. I'm I'm here to talk to Rob." And that will get transcribed on your screen. And you can actually see if this is a person you know or not, and you can accept the call. So phone companies, carriers, I think the government, they're all really aware of the heightened issue. Um, But we should also take precautions on our end. 
Right, and I guess, I mean, on the other hand, if in doubt, just hang up, right? Sorry, could you repeat that? Just, if you're in doubt, just just hang up on the call. Exactly, just hang up. I mean, you know, if you are if you are getting a phone call from someone, you have no idea who this person is, hang up the phone, block the number, report the number, and always remember that the government is never going to call you and threaten you. Right. That is something that they have repeatedly said. They've even tweeted it out for people who are on social media. They've said it on, you know, multiple social media sites. We do not threaten you on phone calls. So it's, it's just about constantly educating uh, Canadians um, to remember to stay calm, never give out your information um, if, if you're being threatened to give it, and, and um, hopefully these systems will work. Let's hope so. Uh, much more on all of this. Again, mobilesyrup.com. Uh, Shruti, thanks for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care. That's uh, Shruti uh, Shekhar, telecom tech reporter with mobilesyrup.com. And some thoughts from her on uh, what the CRTC is ordering here and when this is all supposed to happen. Uh, so as of yesterday, the companies need the technology in place to block these weird long numbers. Numbers with more than 15 digits and numbers that can't be dialed. So those types of numbers will no longer go to your phone. So that will cut down on some of them. But typically, probably what you see now more than often are these spoofed numbers. Numbers that look like... They're coming not necessarily from someone you know, but someone who you might theoretically know, like a 403 number. And it's funny because the other day my phone rang and it was a 403 number. And right away, my assumption was that it was one of these spam calls. For whatever reason, I decided to answer. And it actually wasn't a spam call. I was really surprised. But yeah, those are typically what you see now. 403 numbers. So it looks like it's, uh, you know, maybe someone you might know. Maybe it's, you know, a, a local business calling you, your doctor or something like that. So the companies have another, well, not quite a year. September 30th, 2020 is when technology needs to be implemented that will allow customers to see if the uh, origin and the identity of calls they receive have been verified. So putting a lot of onus on the phone companies, it's probably not going to block all of these spam calls. And certainly if, if you've been giving out your phone number, so if someone has your number, they can still try to contact you directly. Uh, but hopefully this will significantly cut down on the number of these calls. So again, I mean, you can just not answer your phone, regardless of who it is. If it's somebody who genuinely needs to get a hold of you, well, they'll leave a message and you can call them back. Or they'll find a different way to get in touch with you. So that's one thing you can do. Don't answer the phone. Uh, number two, I mean, just hang up. If in doubt, just hang up. Uh, certainly, you know, in, any government agency is not going to call and threaten you. They're not going to demand that you pay them in gift cards or Bitcoin or anything of, of the sort. I mean, sometimes the Canada Revenue Agency does need to get in touch with people. And I think they're, they're sensitive to the fact that there are all these scams out there. So they're going to be careful in how they, they reach you. Certainly the cops aren't going to phone you. I mean, if the cops are coming to arrest you, they're coming to arrest you. Uh, so if in doubt, just hang up. Just that, that five seconds. It, it's instantly recognizable what that song is 
And it's a very well-constructed song, and it's probably part of the reason why Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is so enduring. Of course, starts with Mariah. I don't want a lot for Christmas. Right, the powerful voice, the dramatic setup, and then it just burst into action. It's catchy. Very catchy. Uh, I mean, probably taking out the Christmas context, it probably would have been a a hit pop song. But it is so much more than just a hit pop song, even though today, I guess we can call it a hit pop song because it's number one on the Billboard charts 25 years after this song came out. I mean, it's been an incredible success. Most big pop stars have a few Christmas songs that they've recorded. Typically, they're, they're covers of other Christmas songs. But they struck gold on this one. Just on this song alone, <laughs> uh, it has made Mariah Carey very wealthy. Now, plus everything else she's done, that hasn't, uh, that hasn't hurt either. Uh, joining us for some thoughts on uh, why this is such a phenomenon. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Alan Cross, music writer, broadcaster, historian, much more at a journal of musicalthings.com. Alan, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Oh, you're going to make me talk about this bloody song, aren't you? <laughs> well, you're in the camp of It Drives Me Crazy. And yes, very much two camps on this song, isn't there? There, there? there is. I mean, you nailed it. It is a very well-constructed pop song in the tradition of Phil Spector and the girl groups of the 1960s. If you take it apart and look at it and compare it to some of those songs from back then, it's it's almost perfectly... Um, you know, follows the template. And, you know, it's, it's got a good melody and people like to sing along to it. And it's a, it, it, it's a happy Christmas song. What, you know, what, what else can you say? And, and because it's so well constructed uh, and because it's so easy to, uh, easy to sing along to, then, you know, no wonder it's a hit. Now, she has a writing credit on this and a producer credit on this. But, but, yeah, she, yeah. she, she does. She's, she's made about $60 million from the song. That song, um, yes. Yeah. And, and see, this is, okay, a couple of things we have to, we have to deconstruct this a little bit. First of all, one of the reasons you want to do a Christmas song, any artist, and in fact, uh, I have seen more new Christmas songs come up this year than any other year ever. Uh, and the reason you want to do this is because Christmas songs are evergreen. You know, for two months every year, every November, every December, you know that you have a real shot at having your song being played a lot. And not just on the radio, but also streaming. And this is why we have to take the Mariah Carey thing apart. When the song was first released in 1994, there was no such thing as radio stations flipping to all Christmas music formats every single November. It, It happens pretty much after the last Santa Claus parade wraps up. And these radio stations play nothing but Christmas music 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until the holidays are over. Uh, so they're always, they were always been looking for material to play, because that's a lot of Christmas music. And this became one of the more popular songs. And uh, every year, these radio stations, which uh, get big ratings by flipping formats, uh, end up uh, playing this song a lot. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, and I had a look, and last week, in the last seven days alone, in North America, thanks to all these radio stations, this song has been played 
10,533 times just <laughs> on the radio in the last seven days. So a lot of it is, is, is these, they are these all, all Christmas stations, which of course, you know, uh, increases interest in the song, which increases sales, which increases, you know, a whole bunch of things and pushes it up the charts. The other thing that we have to look at is streaming. Now, when the song came out 25 years ago, nobody even had even thought about it. No. <laughs> but now, if you want Christmas music, you don't have to go out and buy it. You know, Michael Bublik put out a Christmas uh, album a couple of years ago. It was a huge hit. Josh Groban did the same thing. Huge hit. You don't have to go to the CD, to the record store anymore. You can just stream this stuff. And that makes it extremely convenient to put all the big hits in a playlist and just let them run. So with Mariah Carey, you know, the song has already been uh, a hit for, for 25 years. That song has been streamed. You ready for this? In, in, in the U.S. alone over the last seven days, 40.2 million times. <laughs> just through Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, whatever else. 40.2 million times in the last seven days. And it's usually just people, uh, you know, running playlists. In Canada, the number is about 3.8 million times in the last seven days. So if you add up the radio airplay, and add in anybody who buys the digital download of the song. If you buy, if you add in anybody who buys any Christmas album with that song on it, and if you add in all the streaming, well, these things are all metrics when it comes to pushing songs up the charts. So it's no wonder, you know, with all this new technology that's being used, that the song has hit number one on the pop charts. It would have never done it had it not been for streaming, had it not been for all Christmas radio stations. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different calculation today to get to number one on the chart, right? So that, Completely. That, yeah. Um, so it, it, under the circumstances of 1994, I mean, it clearly wouldn't have happened, although, I mean, in, in every sense, I think it's, it's still fair to call it a hit. Well, it is still yeah. very fair to call it a hit. It is. It has always been a hit. I mean, it's, it's, we've been seeing it creep up, you know, top 20, top 15, top 10, top 5. I think it was number four last year where it, it topped out and this year it's number one the first ever uh number one christmas song on the billboard hot 100 charts since 1958 what? when alvin and the chipmunks <laughs> wanted a hula hoop oh dear oh, we don't need to talk about that song no no we don't <laughs> but there is now too i think some you know now there's been 25 years there is now a nostalgia factor to it i would say well, it's become, you know, one of these Christmas staples. Uh, mm. When I was in school working in the grocery store, we had an 8-track player in the office that ran 15 Christmas songs over and over and over again. And that included, uh, you know, Brenda Lee rocking around the Christmas tree and Burl Ives, Holly Jolly Christmas, and you know, Andy Williams doing Little Drummer Boy or whatever it was. So it's become one of those Christmas standards. Becoming, you know, it, it is on a level now. With White Christmas, mm -hmm. with any of these other songs, it will, you know, until the heat death of the universe, this song is going to be played every Christmas, um, along with all the other traditional favorites. It is pretty much, you know, <laughs> the it's Jingle Bells. It, it's it's walking in a winter wonderland. It's it's one of those songs now.
It is. And, you know, and that's the thing, because I guess you can give them credit for taking a chance on an original song. Right? It's pretty easy for big stars to cut a Christmas album, re-record the same ones that have been done a million times, or put a, you know, your unique spin on it. But there's not a lot of original hit Christmas songs in the last even generation that, that really come to mind. This is well, no, the most obvious. It's really tough. I mean, you know, what? how are you going to capture the spirit of Christmas in a song? It's very, very difficult. Yeah. And Christmas is a time of tradition, so people will always go back to their favorite songs. Sure, you can go and record a version of, let's say, you know, Little Drummer Boy or White Christmas or whatever it is. But unless it has that, that something that somehow ingratiates itself into popular culture, I'll give you an example. Uh, David Bowie and Bing Crosby doing Little Drummer Boy. I mean, that came from a, a, a TV show in 1977. It, you know, that has become a, a favorite for any number of reasons. And again, we're, it, it's up in that pantheon. There's probably about, I don't know, 50, 60 songs, Christmas songs, that uh, are absolutely, unassailably evergreen, that we will hear forever and ever and ever. And it is the goal of, of everyone to write something or record something that ends up in that particular pantheon. Because, again, year after year, the royalty checks are going to come in, and they're only yeah. getting bigger because <laughs> of streaming and because of, of uh, um, um, well, these all-Christmas radio stations. They're, they're only going to get bigger, and it's, it's never going to go away. Let's think about, for example, you know, Burl Ives and Holly Jolly Christmas. I think 1950... I don't know, 59, 57, something like that. You know, how much money has this estate made just from radio airplay and other royalties associated with that? Brenda Lee, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, same kind of thing. You know, these are original songs, not traditional remakes, but they were original songs written by somebody, and, you know, somebody's making a lot of money. I mean, we talk about White Christmas, which was written, you know, by a swimming pool in the middle of July, and ended up in a, in a movie called Holiday Inn, and, and, and that was 1944. So, you know, that song sold uh, somewhere, we think, beyond 100 million copies. We think. <laughs> uh, and, and who is that? Rodgers and Hammerstein? I can't remember the... Why can't I remember the composer? But anyway, uh, the, 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 you we're talking tens of millions of dollars that has been generated by one of these. So if you hit one of these, you know, it's, it's like reading the lottery. Oh, yeah. So Mariah Carey and her co-writers and co-producers have hit the lottery with this one because, again, they recorded one song, and it comes back for two months every year, year after year, and generates tens of millions of dollars in profit. It is quite something. Uh, much more at uh, journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, thanks for joining us, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. You too. Happy holidays. All the best. Appreciate it, Alan. There you go. Alan Cross, a music writer, broadcaster, historian, and his thoughts on, yeah, I mean, how lucrative Christmas music can be. Uh, and you know, I guess the thing with some of the standards, right, is that you don't have enough time to really get sick of them. You hear them for a month or two, then they go away for a while, and then they come back. But the idea of, of hitting that, that jackpot where you've now created a Christmas classic, well, you're set. As, as he said, for Mariah Carey, just alone on this one song, that's $60 million that she's earned off of that. That's pretty incredible. Uh, so there are not a lot of examples of, of that kind of a, an instant classic that are associated with one artist. Uh, to me, Blue Christmas would be an example of that, although that wasn't originally written as an Elvis song. Apparently, that was actually written in, in the late 40s, that song. But I think that's one that Elvis made his own. And of course, 
there is this, which really still, I think, is the reigning champion of Christmas songs. And I, ironically, uh, the All I Want for Christmas is You song was kind of written to sort of mimic that sound and feel of that 1963 Phil Spector Christmas album, which featured this classic. Darlene Love, uh, one of the tracks on that uh, Phil Spector Christmas album. And I mean, she had some, some other songs, some hits of her, her own aside from them. Uh, but that really made a name for her. And that really is her song. Other artists have covered that song. But there's an example, I think, of what became really a, a traditional Christmas song. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.